This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Nedjean Paul is the co-founder and CEO of Anse Poyaiti, or Teach for Haiti, which works to raise education outcomes in rural Haiti by promoting teacher excellence and student success. Nedjean's previous roles at Achievement First, the Episcopal Diocese of Connecticut, and World Teach included opportunities to manage recruitment, staff orientation, tutoring, and governance duties, as well as the development of a school principal residency program. Nedjean also worked with partners in health to manage onboarding, benefits, and workforce planning for the organization's transnational teams. She has conducted teacher training seminars and extensive research about the historical, cultural, and socioeconomic factors contributing to Haiti's school system, and in 2014, she was named among the top global social innovators by Echoing Green. I spoke with Nedjean in Port-au-Prince. Hello, Nedjean. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where are you sitting today? Are we, do we find you in Port-au-Prince or somewhere else in the world? Uh, we are in Port-au-Prince, yes. I'm actually sitting in the childhood home where I grew up um, and have come back, um, come back home in many respects uh, to lead this organization in Haiti. Um, and also just coming back from a trip where we were visiting our school communities in Gonaive and Gomon yesterday. That's awesome. Now, in the Haitian culture, is is coming home, is that something awesome? Or is it like the U.S. culture where, you know, you're kind of like, I moved back home? <laughs> it is awesome. I would absolutely say the the former. Uh, I think it's it's really exciting to be able to reconnect with people I grew up with and also even to be recognized for some of the work that my parents did in the rural communities where we've had the pleasure of operating our organization. So in all respects, it's been very positive. That's super cool. So you've, you've alluded to it a couple of times already. Tell us about your organization and you know what you do and, and just sort of give us an introduction to why you're sitting in Haiti now. Sure. So I am the co-founder and CEO of Ase Pwaiti, which in Haitian Creole stands for Teach for Haiti. Um, and I am honored to be part of a team that's really looking to create a new narrative of Haiti through equal educational opportunity and also building this incredible cohort um, of the next generation of Haitian teacher leaders so that we can really dramatically change how students are learning and how they're growing within Haitian society. And in terms of the work that we do, I've come back home because I truly believe that it's possible to recruit a whole new movement of allies and teachers um, and leaders, period, to really change a conversation about what's possible when we're investing in the right things for education equity. There's a lot of things to unpack there. What's, why don't we start at the, at the last thing there? What are the right things to invest in in Haiti for education equity? For me, I think it's the people. Uh, in many respects, I've been learning more and more about why people think you need to invest in buildings and invest in institutions and invest in kind of government uh, and the corporations. And all those different pieces, of course, play a role in, in what education equity could and should look like. But at the end of the day, I believe that if we're really building the right human capacity to do the work, you can transform all of those other pieces that I mentioned. Um, and so for me, I think it's about the Haitian people and how the Haitian people themselves can really be empowered and equipped to change their nation. So you have ob the obvious motivator. You're Haitian. You, you grew up there and you've now returned to start this organization. But to give us the genesis, how did, you know, where did you wake up one day and you're like, I need to go do this. This is the time is right. 
I would say it's it's funny. Whenever I, I think about just that that moment um, or that kind of light bulb, this is what I want to do and this is the passion I have, um, I would never be able to forget kind of the long series of conversations and moments and situations and encouragement that I got from my parents um, who were so determined to make sure that their three children did not forget where they came from. Um, so I actually left Haiti at a pretty young age, but Again, I had the privilege of having these just really amazing conversations with my parents about Haitian history and culture and what's working, what's not working. And I think that's a privilege because I have a lot of friends and a lot of peers um, who in, in many respects sometimes got a bit disconnected um, from the reality that is Haiti. I think the other thing that I cannot forget to mention is, is my father um, was a teacher and a school director um, in the community where we are working. And so he also encouraged myself and my siblings to travel to Haiti. And, and all of the trips in my mind were never around visiting family. They were never around vacationing. It was about actually visiting some of the school communities in which he worked. And so there was this one moment in particular. Uh, I was about 12 years old. Uh, and I remember just playing with peers, right? That was the other thing. I was young and I was playing with others who were around 11, 12 years old um, in a really rural primary school in uh, La Cule. And I just remember looking over and seeing a young boy who was being teased um, by some other boys because he had no shoes. Um, and I just remember just rapidly trying to figure out how to distract this boy from the just the teasing, just the, the merciless taunting that's you know common in all cultures, in my opinion. And the thing I asked him was, show me where you go to school, um, because that, that was my love. I was that, that student who loved school and didn't want any snow days or any days off from school. And I have never seen, and I'll always remember it, a child light up so dramatically just to show me where he sits every day to learn um, and even tried to mimic some of the things that his teacher does. And I just started speaking with him and I realized pretty quickly that was the first time that he would actually have to finish his school career by sixth grade because his community only went through that grade for the primary schools that were accessible. And it was actually the first time it hit me, right, that I was privileged. And again, I, that wasn't the word, of course, that came to mind at 12 years old. But I remember turning to my dad and just saying, why? And it was the first time that I could remember that my dad didn't have an answer for me. And I just remember feeling pretty upset. I, I, I thought he was the all-knowing one, of course. And, and I really, really think about that moment quite often when I then think about all the things I did in high school, in college, in grad school, and even in my early career, always looking for the answer to that why. Why is it that some kids don't have access beyond sixth grade? Why is it that this child that I remember so well, his name was Benji, um, why did he only have two benches in his classroom for more than 20 kids. So those, those why questions, I think, really pushed me um, into this field and into this, this just incredible opportunity to launch an organization in my home country. You sound like you might be one of the anomalies in the development world, uh, someone who mm -hmm. knew from a young age that you, this is what you wanted to do. What was your early career like? How, this isn't the first venture you've, you've worked on or you've, you've been an employee of or, or started. What did you, what'd you do before? I actually started right after undergrad. Um, I was part of an incredible team um, called the Achievement First Public School, Public Charter School Network. Um, and they have public charter schools uh, across the Northeast in the U.S., um, in New York and Connecticut in particular. And for me, I was so blown away to be able to be part of an organization that was basically, again, changing the conversation about what's possible when you invest in 
the right levers. And so I saw kind of really dramatic education reform firsthand domestic in the U.S. But for me, I really always knew that I was going to come back home. And so I then went to grad school and studied uh, international education policy. And during that time in grad school, really started working on the model for USAID. And after that, again, I think this was a pretty strategic opportunity. But in many respects, I credit um, incredible opportunities and privilege for landing me in the right place to be exposed to the right things, so that I could be a successful co-founder of an organization. Because after grad school, I had the opportunity to join the Partners in Health team. And a lot of people have asked me and said, that's, that's health, right? It's a little different from education. Um, but I was actually brought on board as an educator because I was able to help start a curriculum for the management and the leadership development and training of the Partners in Health staff, especially those in Haiti. And so when I talk about those two years of Partners in Health, for me, it was about being exposed to what it takes to start a grassroots organization and continue to have such longevity and such sustainability after they've been around for more than 25 years and after starting in Haiti in a really rural context. And so I would never, ever deny how much I pulled from that experience, even though it was the healthcare sector. We have so much to learn from what others do in different sectors in education. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Absolutely. And, and I think pretty common that all aspects of development, if it's finance, if it's governance, if it's health, education, capacity building, as we call it, is it's a critical component of almost every aspect of what we do, isn't it? That's absolutely right. So you're you're at Partners in Health. You're kicking ass and taking names, for lack of a better term. When did you wake up and you're like, I need to do something? I'm like, I, this, you know, I, it's time for me to make the jump. Mm. Gosh, it is a leap of faith. I and I know that term gets gets kind of bantied around and, and shared in a lot of different respects. But um, I am a woman of faith. I am the the daughter of a, a priest, um, and so my faith is also, I think, the other thread that that weaves through my entire life story. And I think for me, I was constantly trying to figure out: is there a quote unquote strategy? Is there a right kind of calculus to the timing, right, of, of launching a really successful and also just impactful organization. And as much as I try to be calculating about it, again and again, the answer was no, there's not a right time or a wrong time. But for me, I think the key thing that I would never, ever try to go away from was that I wanted to have a slow and steady approach to launching a SNAP YAT. And so while I was in graduate school, um, again, I had the privilege of being part of a cohort of a very international team. And I was just asking a lot of different people kind of what were their experiences in their home countries. And again and again, there seemed to be this common denominator of investing in the people. And so I felt like I had started to build this model that would make a lot of sense. And for me, it was about, again, the slow and steady development. And I said I would start to launch it and do a very concentrated focus on building the model, speaking with members of the community. And I ended up doing that for three years before we officially launched in late 2014. So it was a very, very slow and steady approach and, and even kind of a night and weekend kind of gig for quite a, a long time before we were officially on the ground with our team in place in late 2014. Okay. So, yeah, you, so essentially you were moonlighting, uh, yes. getting, getting it right before right. you decided to take a leap. I want to go back and talk about what you learned over those three years but first, you know, when you did finally, quote unquote, launch, was that because of a grant that you won? Was it because uh, you decided to take money out of your pocket and say, OK, we're ready to do this? Well, you know, what was that initial injection of funding or uh, finally the moment where you're like, you know what, we're, we're ready. We've got this. 
Mm. I appreciate that question because I think in a lot of respects, people feel like you need to have all the money in place to be able to launch. Um, that wasn't my experience and it still is not. Um, and so I think that's an Don't incredible worry, I think, privilege. I think that's the experience for most people. So. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's good. I, um, so I think for me it was, I think it was a bit of both. It was both kind of injecting my own funds into this and also getting an incredible opportunity to be part of the Echoing Green Fellowship. Um, and so I was awarded the Equine Green Global Fellowship um, in 2014. And that allowed me to have enough startup funds to bring on others to do this work. Because to be honest, I, I could have continued to kind of moonlight um, and do this kind of in a very part-time way. Um, but I knew that if we're talking about a quality movement, there's just, there's got to be a really good focus on, on getting quality outcomes and putting in quality inputs. And so I didn't think that the people I was speaking with the potential candidates for our cohort deserve to be treated like a hobby or a side gig. Um, and so I really wanted to focus um, everything that I had and everything that I could offer to this on a full-time basis. And so I you know, resigned from my full-time work um, and picked this up um, and was able to start it full-time after Echo and Green. Then now take us back through those three years of, of moonlighting of, of those gigs what were you doing what you know were you were you testing models like what worked what didn't work how did, how did that what was that all about i would say the two big things that will always stay with me from those three years were one asking questions i felt like i always wanted to be that person who didn't propose anything um, because I've been on the receiving end, I think, of those who kind of come with solutions instead of asking questions. Um, and so I tried to be very thoughtful um, and intentional about asking questions to anyone who would listen. I reached out to quite a bit of people, um, everyone who would be in the communities where I thought we could start here in Haiti. So I did quite a bit of traveling and, and speaking with school directors, students, teachers, parents, kind of government officials who, who have done this work in different capacities, especially those in the past, right, who've seen things come and go and could tell me quite a bit about um, kind of the, the fads that go out pretty quickly. So a, a lot of asking questions. Um, and I think the other piece that was really important to me um, was visiting the school communities. Um, I took many, many trips to Gunaive and Gomon and Mirbale and Bukankare, which is the four kind of communes in which we work right now, because I just wanted to get a sense of if you're sitting in the back of a classroom, are the experiences that I remember from the school system here in Haiti and the ones that I remember from being that 12-year-old girl who was asking Benji questions about his school experience, how have those changed, right? How, what are people saying in 2010, 2011, 2012 about the education system? And so I try to be as much of a fly on the wall as possible. Um, those are the two big things. And I would say the other piece is, to your point about kind of just testing models, um, I was really grateful that Teach for All existed. Uh, Teach for All is a global network. Um, that looks for social entrepreneurs and speaks with social entrepreneurs who are interested in adapting a model to their country's context. And, and I would never be able to overlook, uh, overlook how they played a role in my kind of honing and adapting kind of what they call a global approach to Haiti's context. Um, so they were key players in those three years. Mm. So how is the model of your organization of engagement different than the, the umpteen other organizations that are in Haiti right now, uh, seeking to help that country? I would say in many respects, I have such a deep love and appreciation for Haitian culture and community and customs um, that it's even become kind of the three C's of our organization. I honestly, it was not intentional, but it's become, I, I say it so often that I think it's become just part of our fabric um, and part of our day to day. 
And I don't experience that a lot, right? I mean, I've been around a lot of organizations and humanitarian um, initiatives in Haiti, but so often it's about, it's the goals and it's the strategies and it's the data and it's the funding and all of that is so critical. We need that as well. Um, but sometimes I feel as if they are cut and paste versions of what you might see in other places. And so I feel proud that I'm part of a team and working alongside a cohort of teacher leaders who have such deep respect um, for how Haitian culture and history is unique and how in many respects we need to be a movement that is bringing that culture and history back to the forefront when people talk about Haiti, because as a country, we were once a global leader um, and, and we want to be a global leader once again without forgetting our roots. And, and so Haitian culture and customs, everything from Haitian proverbs, um, weave into the curriculum that we create for our teacher leaders, um, the way that we lead our trainings in Haitian Creole. The fact that I chose to name our organization in Haitian Creole has raised some eyebrows sometimes. And I, I love teaching people how to pronounce it because I think it's worth the effort um, because I think it shows a deep respect for for our country. I think the other piece is that we are a people-centered movement. I We would not be able to set out our ambitious goals or work towards this big mission without caring about the Haitian people and asking their input and feedback at every single step of the way. And so I think we've embedded a lot of informal and formal surveys, but beyond that, conversations and forums and meetings at the heart of the communities where we're going to be able to get the the real nitty gritty and just real and even sometimes unfortunate realities that we're going to have to confront if we want to be a successful organization. Give me some of the unsuccessful fortune uh, realities or the unfortunate realities that you've had to confront in some of these communities. I would say number one, and it probably comes as no surprise to those who, who are interested and, and love talking about education in Haiti, is the teacher salary issue. When we say we want to recruit the next generation of, of leaders for education in Haiti, we want to recruit just the, the top candidates who have so much to offer in terms of their qualifications, but also their mindsets and their belief that change is possible. Unfortunately, that often gets really, really hard to match with the salaries that schools can offer to pay their teachers. And so it has been heartbreaking to have conversations with school teachers and school directors even who are completely at a loss for what to do because one, they can't raise enough funds to pay their teachers. And two, you have teachers who are going entire school years without having a penny to their name um, because they, they so believe in the work that they're doing and sometimes there's just no other options. Um, and so I think that's been one of the really, really hard realities to face. I think the other piece has been growing disillusionment with what schools can do and a growing sense of we believe in education, right? You never have to convince a Haitian parent that education is important or sending their child to school is important. In my opinion, that is a huge leg up um, from some context where sometimes that needs to happen. The challenge now, though, is school to what end, right? And, and so after those years between me being 12 years old and, and now running an organization many years later, I used to have conversations about, let's do everything we can to make sure this school in our community is top-notch and high quality. Now you have parents saying, rightly so, why should I send my child to school if at the end of the day they won't be well-prepared or well-equipped to either get a job or do anything afterwards? Um, and so I think those conversations have started to inform me about, again, just the harsh reality of what life is, even if you go to a great school. And does that then also reflect on just the Haitian economy in, in particular and or in general? 
about absolutely. I mean, that's the the subtext or the the context within within your speaking. I mean, you could have the best education in the world, but if there's the opportunities aren't there, if there's no outlets, then it's difficult to make the investment. Is that what I'm getting? That is right. Um, and I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I think our work can touch on those things because I firmly believe that an education movement for Haiti cannot just stay within the four walls of a classroom. And so I'm excited that I think we're equipping and providing opportunities for our cohort members to be leaders in those types of conversations for every sector of the country. Because I'm under no illusion that we can have successful schools if it's only teachers fighting for quality for all. And so we want our cohort members to, of course, stay in the classroom, to, of course, become the next generation of school directors and principals. But we also need some of them to become the lawyers who are advocating for change and the economists who are saying this is why we should invest, you know, double the amount that the GDP um, has offered in schools in Haiti. And we also need people who are just community organizers going out and making sure that that parents are um, activated and ignited to be able to lend their voices to change. So I'm excited that our movement is equipping leaders to be leaders, not just in the classroom, but all over community. What's your biggest frustration? What makes you want to tear your hair out or, or sort of throw your hands up, you know, over the last couple of years here now that the organization is official, but also, you know, over those three years you were moonlighting, what are those big challenges that you're still sort of biting your teeth about? If I'm being incredibly honest, I think the number one thing that continues to baffle me is the perception of Haiti. And that can, of course, have many, many different interpretations because people's perceptions can be constructed over a lot of experiences and a lot of access and exposure to different information. But the reality of Haiti is so different from what is shared and what is disseminated in so many different outlets. And so when I see the reality of how our cohort members, one in particular who hasn't received a penny, right, for a couple of years in, in teaching in his rural school community, but continues to wake up every day and say, I know I need to be here for my students. I know I have the tools to be able to make a difference in their lives. Those stories, that story of that teacher is not one that you're going to hear too often. Um, and I think the other piece is this idea that it's a country that is dysfunctional and there's instability and there's a lack of will to make a real difference. Yes, that's one aspect of it, but I think it's so much more complex. And so instead of just saying the perception of Haiti, maybe the, the, the proper way that I'm trying to express myself here is that there's a simplification of, of the complexity that is Haiti. And I think that's one of the things that in many respects, I, I attend meetings and conferences where I feel like that needs to be unpacked and that needs to be discussed well before you can talk about an economic plan that will make sense and well before you can talk about um, investing in the quote-unquote right organizations. Um, we really need to be honest about some of the narratives that exist because I think those are the things that are building up barriers instead of breaking them down so that we can have real, true, lasting change. So what do you think the next five years look like for you? Um, how does how does your organization continue to grow? How you know what are the challenges you foresee either facing or overcoming? For the next five years, I would say we're still an early organization, kind of early in the startup 
phase. And so for me, I think we want to continue doing what we've set out to do really well. Um, I am a big believer that quality speaks volumes and commitment um, and and sticking to your word and sticking to the promises that you've made to a community um, really allow you to build deep, deep roots and deep relationships that will carry you forward. And so we want to make sure that every year we continue to recruit a really outstanding cohort of teacher leaders who go through our two-year program. That's one. The other piece is that I really want to continue building this international network of allies. I've talked before about how we are, I think I've mentioned it, Haitian-led and Haitian-run, which is, I think, important, an important statement. Um, but I also have, have no doubts that we won't be successful unless we also have allies and partners who are across Haiti's borders. We are as Haitians, a transnational people. So our diaspora need to be activated. And partners who believe in Haiti being a global leader once again, those voices and those um, types of support will go so far. And so in the next five years, I very much hope to have a network of allies who are acting as ambassadors for us in Apuaiti, wherever they are and in whatever walks of life um, they, they choose to get involved. And the last piece is is one of the things that reminds me of your other question around just kind of what gets a little bit frustrating is is fundraising, right? And I think you got to make the engine run and there's got to be enough there to make sure you can move forward with the goals and the ambitious vision that you have. And so over the next five years, I hope that our vision and our impact speak to those who can provide us with the funds to, to make sure that we continue to do the work that we seek to do. But when I talk about fundraising, one of the things that I'm still learning, um, because I I did not set my career out um, to be a CEO or to, to lead an organization, um, but one of the things I'm, I'm still learning and grateful for is that funders and donors become partners. Um, and that's what we need to make this movement work. And so I'm really excited that there are people who have believed in us from day one and are probably the top champions of what's possible in Haiti because of the way that they've been integrated into our work. Is that what, how, what you, how you spend most of your time now? Are you fundraising, proposal writing, promoting the organization, being the spokesperson for it? Or are you still, do you still have your hands in the trenches? I still have my hands in the trenches, and it, it makes me so happy that I can still have my hands in the trenches. Um, I, I just, again, remember those those trips um, when I was younger and being able to shadow a teacher and shadow a principal here in rural Haiti. That is what has allowed me to, to just be so excited and still so hopeful about what's possible in, in my country. And so I, I hope to always be able to do that. But the reality is um, my percentage of time spent in the trenches continues to lessen because um, there's just so many demands, right, on, on the time um, when it comes to fundraising and grant writing. So I would say typically it depends on the season. So we have a really heavy kind of recruitment and selection season where I'm always in the communities and involved in that piece. We also have a heavy kind of summer training period where I love to be there day to day. But once teachers are in the schools and we're kind of under a bit of a three-month lull until we recruit the next cohort. Yes, a lot of my time, to answer your question, um, is focused on being an advocate, fundraising, attending meetings and conferences where, you know, the partners are at the table um, and the community members are at the table asking all the right questions and really pushing each other um, to make sure that we are not duplicating efforts, but rather building bridges um, so that we can get further together. Mm. You told us a pretty passionate story about, you know, when you were 12 and sort of that's your genesis about being a, a development or an aid professional. 
Although I'm not even sure I would characterize you as that. Yeah, I think you're just, mm-hmm. an, I think you're an ed- educator. But what's your go-to story now, uh, now that you've started this organization when you're either talking with a donor or if you and I are, go down and have a cup of coffee, you know, or you're meeting an old friend for the first time, what's, what's your go-to story about a student who's been affected by your organization or a teacher who's been affected, something that, that happened unexpected that you're like, this is why I'm here? One of the things that I'm still looking for, probably not looking for, but still trying to get comfortable with is because of that guy go to, because there are so many stories coming out, I think of, of this cohort and this movement uh, that I'm so excited about. Um, but I, I would say two, if you, if you're okay with that, I think two come to mind. Of course. Thank you. So I would say one um, was in speaking with a member of our 2015 cohort, actually, who after our four week summer immersion training stood up and I think kind of just called the spirit kind of thing, unprompted, said, I never wanted to be a teacher. I didn't like teaching. I didn't think it was the right thing for anyone who really wanted to get ahead in life. But after going through this four-week training, I'm realizing that I am able to have an impact because I am a teacher, and I am able to actually realize that being a teacher is not a teacher in itself. It's actually being a leader of our community and a leader of our nation. And I got very emotional (laughs) because it's those kinds of stories and those kinds of epiphanies and transformations that we're realizing are so much more important than the data can show. Um, There's something about changing kind of the mindset of a member of our community because that's what they're going to use to infuse their work and that's what they're going to use to speak with the students and the parents that they interact with on a daily basis. And so that has been incredibly powerful. I think the other piece, so that I think is is local here in Haiti mm-hmm. um, and represents a lot of the language even that some of our cohort members are now using to talk about teachers that we now say teacher leaders. We don't call them teachers. They're teacher leaders. The other story I'd love to share is that we're building bridges across our borders. And so there was a woman, um, her name was Vernant, um, and she came back to Haiti for the first time in almost 20 years because of Anasnipuaiti. Um, she left many, many years ago. But once she heard of this movement and this work happening, she packed her bags and said, how can I help um, and how can I lend my support? She's a kindergarten teacher in Florida, but came and worked with us for two weeks every single day with our 2015 cohort because she realized that there something new about the way that we're attacking this this problem. And there's something, I think, uplifting as well um, about the way that we look to Haitian culture, history, and language um, to really promote um, a really positive narrative of what's possible. And so when I hear somebody who comes home after 20 years um, because they believe in something they read about in Snape YET, um, again, just the, the hope um, is really hard to describe. I always end my interviews with this last question. I ask this of every every guest on the show. You have an incredible story. You've left your country. You've come back to your country. And now you're, you've started an organization that clearly inspires you and is, is generating hope for, for many people. What advice, what one or two pieces of critical advice would you give to somebody who's either in a master's degree, coming out of a master's degree right now, looking for their first job, or someone who is transitioning from another sector into the service sector about how to be successful or how to be have a sustainable career like you have? A couple things come to mind. I think number one is recognize your privilege, uh, especially in the world that we work in. I appreciate that you referred to me as an educator because I think the work that I do absolutely um, has me play that role. But I think development and humanitarian aid, I think all of it kind of gets thrown in when you start talking about kind of the system level change we want to have in Haiti. So 
a lot of people come at this work, I think, either unable to or maybe not encouraged to talk about their privilege. And and I know I've had privilege in my life. I think I've, I've been to incredible institutions for my higher ed education and also have had the opportunity to, to receive support like Echoing Green's fellowship. And I think that has pushed me so, so much to realize that we need to be very, very humble in this work. And when we come at it, I would encourage anyone interested in this work to just check their privilege, um, know about it. Don't let that be the constraint to you saying, yes or no, I can do this work, but just know about it so that you approach every conversation with humility and this learning stance that you're taking in much more than you're, you're putting out, um, especially when you first begin. I think the other thing that has helped me tremendously is reading and speaking with the people that you want to help serve and and walk alongside. You don't need to necessarily be from the country or the region or the community in which you want to work, but there's something very, very dramatic in my experience that happens when you you read kind of unabridged versions of, of the history of a community, or you speak with a person that seems to have been the outcast, but it was actually the activist. Those are two big things um, that have really pushed me and that encourage that I would encourage anyone interested in this field to do. And then the last thing that I would I would suggest um, that I'm still learning is there's a lot of connectors out there. There are people who want to support those who have really big and bold visions for change. Um, and sometimes we feel like we have to do it all ourselves. And so even when I was moonlighting, there was something about this kind of pushing this this vision forward alone, right, at night or on weekends and just trying to figure out what it would look like. Um, but I credit my co-founder, right, who for directing me to Equine Green um, as an incredible source of support. And, and again, the privilege of having received it allowed me to, to start this full time. So there's connectors out there, whether it's fellowships, whether it's reading a LinkedIn profile <laughs> that directs you to somebody who has done this work before and maybe made mistakes that you shouldn't repeat. I would really encourage people to do that kind of legwork and that kind of background research so that you're not starting things from scratch unnecessarily. I'm going to break my own rule. I'm going to ask one more question. We haven't talked about your co-founder at all. Hmm. Who is your co-founder? Yes, my co-founder uh, is the incredible um, Ivan Lee Noisette. Um, Ivan is a Haitian-American, um, and we were actually connected through uh, Teach for All. So I reached out to Teach for All saying, I, I have this vision for how I want to adapt some of what you're doing in Haiti. Um, and they said, wow, somebody else has reached out to us interested in building this movement and building an organization in Haiti as well. And so we connected. And again, I think because both of us come at this so humbly and so passionately, we knew that it wasn't about working separately. We immediately came together and became co-founders. And that was almost five years ago. He has now become a member of our board and is still actively involved. Um, and again, in many, many ways, um, I credit him for a lot of the different things that we've injected into this movement and how far we've come. Nidhi, thank you so much for this conversation today. This has been fantastic. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 